Before we get to this week's show, a special announcement. Next week, in lieu of our regularly scheduled programming, we'll be doing a live show at the Wythe Hotel in conjunction with Work by Work. We'll be broadcasting from 11 a.m. to 12 p.m. on Friday, February 10th. So to listen live and to learn more, head to wxwonair.com. We're going to split the show into two parts. The first, we're going to talk about what it's like to be an emerging artist today. And in the second, we'll bring on a panel of very special guests to discuss the fashion industry's plagiarism problem. So hope you'll join us. And if not, we'll be releasing the episode as a podcast after it has been broadcast. And now, on to the show. Hello and welcome to the Artsy Podcast, where three editors take you around the art world. I'm your host, Isaac Kaplan, joined this week by Deputy Editor Alex Forbes. Hey, Isaac. Hello, and for the first time, our new art market editor, Anna Louise Sussman. Hi, Isaac. Hello, and great to have you. So this week, we're going to be talking about the National Endowment for the Arts. The agency has been in the news recently over renewed talk that is to be eliminated by the Republican administration of President Donald Trump. I wrote about this subject on Monday, so I'm actually going to hand the hosting reins over to Alex. Alex, uh, you have the floor. So this news broke out um, just before the inauguration, which feels about an eon ago at this point. Um, So Isaac, just for our listeners who might not be up to speed or might have forgotten by now, um, can you kind of recap what exactly has happened? So basically what happened is that there was a report in the website The Hill the day before inauguration that sort of detailed some of the cuts that the Trump administration may propose. And this was drawn heavily from like early planning docs and prep docs and the plans of the Conservative Heritage Foundation, which have long uh, targeted the NEA for elimination. And since this report in The Hill There hasn't been much by way of confirmation. Um, Trump's actual budget is due out in April. But given the track record that Republicans have with the NEA, it is certainly uh, an educated guess, I would say, that that it's going to be targeted and certainly not championed. One way in which it seems to differ from previous proposals, which were to defund it or severely restrict the funding, um, is that Republicans are now looking to eliminate the agency entirely. Does that change anything in terms of um, the future of arts funding in America? Ooh, it changes a lot. It changes a lot. So, you know, everyone uh, will sort of talk about how little money the NEA gets. It got $147 million, uh, give or take a few hundred thousand, uh, in fiscal year 2016. But it has an outsized impact. And beyond that, which we'll get into a little bit, there's sort of broader politics at play. So if you eliminate an agency, it's harder, obviously, if a Democrat takes control um, somehow of all three of, of both houses of Congress and the presidency to then conjure an agency up from nothing. That's a real easy pinata for Republicans to sort of thwack at if you're creating a new, a uh, whole new bureaucracy. So the elimination of the agency would, I imagine, substantially endanger the long-term future of any kind of government funding. Uh, for the arts. 
Um, yes, Isaac, that's a really good point. I think one thing to remember, you, you wrote this in your piece, is that it's not just public um, funding that's at risk. Um, the NEA has calculated that for every uh, dollar they donate um, or put, give out in a grant, um, there's an additional $9 in public, whether that's state or local, and private funding. Um, I think you know, private dollars are a huge part of the cultural scene in the U.S. There's a tradition of philanthropy um, in this country that I think distinguishes it from um, Europe and other countries with a lot more public uh, dollars dedicated towards the arts, and it's perhaps a bigger part of the public consciousness. But um, that private philanthropy is also really key, and because of the way the NEA grants are structured, um, and maybe you can talk a little bit more about that, um, it's really key to leveraging that uh, private money. Right. And, and you're completely right. I mean, in in 2012, private donations to the arts amounted to $42 per person in this country. Public funding for the arts, you know, it's, it's minuscule. It's pennies on the dollar, even less. But at the same time, you know, I was talking to uh, Meg Leary from United States Artists, which is an independent nonprofit, um, one of the few that also has a national focus. Um, and she was saying that the National Endowment for the Arts acts as something of an imprimatur, which means that if you are uh, an arts organization who gets an NEA grant, it's a very rigorous process. So if you have that stamp of approval, it's much easier to go out and raise private dollars from maybe philanthropies that don't have the same kind of vetting process uh, as as the NEA might. And and another way the NEA does this is it will require matching dollars for its its funds. So they'll say, you know, yeah, you can go out and say you got an NEA grant if you can raise this other 2500 and with that sort of stamp and also the promise of more money people give. So uh, the NEA calculated that they helped bring in 500 million uh, additional dollars in 2016, which is which is significant. So, I mean, I think that 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 brings up a really interesting point about, you know, 148 million dollars is less than the most expensive artwork that's ever been sold um, and that becomes kind of a punching bag even for for liberals who support the arts um, quite fervently. Is that do you think a, a reason why the NEA doesn't see more resounding support except for when um, it, it's threatened with elimination? It's an interesting question because if you look at, we, we can get into the history of the culture wars if we have time, but if you look at sort of the history of the NEA under threat, most of the time the people opposing it are right-wing people who are coming at it from a very sort of uh, fervently ideological position. The actual... Uh, you know, dollars and cents are not as important to them as, you know, kind of what it symbolizes and what it funds. I think, and I agree with um, some other people who've written about this, the NEA relies quite a bit on economic uh, justifications for itself. And that's a problem when you have so little money. If the NEA was championing a stronger moral argument in addition to financial arguments, economic arguments, I imagine that not only would it potentially get more funding, it would solidify itself against the ideological critiques that are coming uh, uh, from the right. Well, Anna, you've been doing some looking into the actual economic impacts um, of the arts in America as, as a part of our kind of ongoing look into um, changes in government funding. What are those impacts? And, and does something like the NEA have an influence over that? Yeah, I mean, the arts economy in the U.S. is 
gigantic. There's a few uh, different government agencies that track this. There's a Bureau of Economic Analysis, and then there's separate data, some of the different survey method um, from the Labor Department. The Bureau of Economic Analysis, you know, this is an agency that tracks data from every corner of the economy. And then periodically, they pull out some different satellite accounts to kind of look, get a closer look at specific industries. So they want on tourism, and they have one on arts and cultural industries. The most recent time they pulled out that uh, separate data, they found um, 4.74 million people employed in, for 2013, and that the value added for arts and cultural production accounted for over 4%, it's 4.2% of overall GDP, which is $704.2 billion um, in 2013, which is quite a lot of money. And Isaac mentioned that the NEA, you know, there there is... Um, often an economic justification for it. So I spoke already to um, some of the the researchers who've done some looking into this. Um, you know, I mean, there's there's the obvious thing. If you if you build a new museum, uh, if you open an, a, a new uh, gallery or, um, you know, a theater or something, you're going to see a short-run immediate impact. Like, someone has to build it. You have to employ people. Um, but these researchers who actually were funded with an NEA grant, these researchers found a documented long-term impact on economic growth uh, from cultural production. So how do you go about measuring that long-term impact? I mean, I think it's interesting in the context of a presidency that's been built on job creation. Is that is that easily measurable? And how does that compare to other industries and, and the way the economy is heading in general? So the researchers who were looking at the long-term impact uh, of investing in the arts, they looked specifically at nonprofit organizations because they had a long-term data series for that. And they found that the ultimate impact or what you might call the multiplier effect over the long run, was anywhere from 1.2 to 1.9. So if you invest $100 in a museum, you're likely to see $120 to $190 worth of economic growth you know, as a result of that. So it's a, it's a fairly sound investment. And they had several hypotheses for the, the channels through which that takes place. I mean, nothing they can um, be completely certain about because the the impact varies from geography to geography, so that raises a lot of questions. It gets higher in the um, Pacific and the Northeast and lower in the South. But one one um, possibility is the clustering effect. Uh, this is a common phenomenon in broader economic theory. You know, cities um, where a lot of industries are clustered have a lot of cross-fertilization. There's also the possibility that just having a creative economy is really good for labor productivity because it fosters creativity, which is really key to innovation, which is how we get um, economic growth and new inventions and the things that make our lives better. I spoke to someone this morning um, who's starting a triennial in Cleveland, um, and when we were talking about the value of investing in um, culture instead of, say, something like, you know, there's another big... Uh, um, Ohio philanthropist LeBron James, and he's investing a lot Ooh, in, edu- <laughs> in education. But you know, I asked him, can you compare an investment in, say, health or education to one in culture? And he said, you know, particularly coming from um, a Midwestern city, you know, where there's been a lot of focus on manufacturing jobs, on um, you know, there's STEM and IT, um, you know, science jobs. He said, you you also need that creativity, that ability to like look outside the box and the arts, especially for him, the visual arts really do that. And he said, you know, the the other piece of that is if you're going to retain talent, attract and retain talent, you really need 
a, a cultural sphere that that's really well rounded. Um, but I thought that was really interesting because he's talking about you know investments on a sort of a public basis can really make a huge impact in the private sector. Is Ben part of kind of the partisan debate? Does mm-hmm. it break down that you know? the cultural and art infrastructure investments have more diffuse impacts that are well measurable, not, you know, you can't go out and and sell your museum that you've invested $100 into, whereas like business sector investments are perhaps a little bit more, there might be a more immediate return. I mean, there, it's really tough to break down what, you know, in the end of the day, what is public artistic production and private artistic production. I mean, there's things that are clearly like public art projects. There's also, you know, so much of art moves through the private sphere and private commercial dealers. Um, and then, you know, if you look at how the government's measuring it, it's, it's um, something much more broad. So the Bureau of Economic Analysis, their, their definition of arts and cultural production is quite broad, and it includes things like marketing, advertising, um, a lot of the support services that go into arts and cultural productions that could be anything from um, constructing a museum or, you know, the the stage set for a, a ballet performance to a lot of um, IT stuff or, you know, if you picture Pixar, I mean, it's loads and loads of computer people. I think in that sense, um, you know, the arts economy is evolving along the lines of uh, the broader economy, where you just see lots of growth in service sector tech jobs, um, you know, and a decline in manufacturing. I mean, the share of the arts jobs that are related to building uh, actual edifices is falling, um, and you're seeing a lot more growth in IT. So, you know, all those trends that you see in the broader economy, um, you know, shift towards less tangible. Um, you know, services and intellectual property, you also see that um, happening in the arts economy. And it, 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 it does raise the question of, you know, why um, President Trump, who, who really ran on a jobs um, platform, is so obsessed with manufacturing. I mean, you know, there's a almost unstoppable trend towards service sector employment. And, you know, dub- maybe doubling down on any investment could be a huge um, job creator. So, you know, if he wants to be the quote unquote greatest jobs president God ever created or whatever <laughs> whatever his <laughs> claim to fame was, you know, this this could be an interesting um, investment that he could make. And, um, you know, I, it, it does seem from the research that there are a lot of jobs that could come out of that. Well, that is a bombshell. But, Isaac, <laughs> you mentioned before a moral argument is at play here as well. So aside from Trump's best investment or a, a good investment um, being doubling down on the size of the NEA, Walk us through a little bit the the other impacts in terms of of access to the arts that these have, and and that how that moral argument plays out. Well, I actually think there is an interesting connection to Trump here because I sometimes do feel a little strange uh, sitting literally in a tower writing about how the NEA uh, is helping everyone. Um, you know, I I can completely understand why people in the Rust Belt communities, you know, would not be moved by an argument that, uh, you know, this uh, installation in an abandoned factory is uh, great for them and even both economically and like spiritually, whatever. Maybe it is. I mean, maybe it originates there. Maybe they've come up with it and maybe it's great. But, you know, I I do think that there are some genuine uh, criticisms to be made of the NEA. It does give grants to huge institutions in major cities that uh, will not suffer from its absence. I mean, the title of the piece was Who Stands to Lose the Most? And the answer is 100% not. 
us, not us sitting in this room, not people in Chicago, not people in LA. It's going to be the people who um, are in smaller communities, in rural communities, who receive a good amount of NEA funding because the NEA is um, one of the only organizations that has a geographical mandate across the entire nation. It funds projects. It has funded projects in literally every single congressional district, um, which, as Anna pointed out, the only other uh, thing that does that that she that she knows of is our uh, defense contractors, who you know every part of a Boeing jet will be will be assembled. So I think it's interesting that you sort of reposition the NEA as kind of like this quote unquote jobs creator. It also has parallels to other job creators like. Uh, you know, defense, defense contracting. But I do think we need to think about when we're positioning the NEA, you know, the, the, the gulf between where we're sitting quite literally and ideologically and a lot of the people who um, are Trump supporters who are moved uh, by th- this, this call to manufacturing. I don't think the NEA is going to sway their, change their minds necessarily. I don't think that's the role of the NEA, but I think it's something to keep in mind um, as we sort of say, like, you're crazy. How can you not understand why this is a good thing? Because, you know, these communities are decimated to the point where they're not even showing up in unemployment statistics because they haven't even been able, they've been there. They haven't searched for a job in so long. But it's it's also worth pointing out. I mean, there's been a lot of studies about where are what's happening to the men who've dropped out of the labor, the working age men who dropped out of the labor force. And um, there have been a lot of I mean, there was one statistic I saw there. They're watching on average 353 minutes of television a day. Um, there have been some economists who pointed out to the rise of video games. I mean, those are both, that's, that's cultural production. Like they're very much part of the arts economy. Um, so they're consumers of it. Um, you know, so I think we should, we shouldn't forget that either. That's taking a very expansive view of cultural production. Is there, I know Anna, you spoke to a couple people, um, looking at when the Dow cracked 20,000, um, and one of them brought up that the NEA and, and other kind of uh, antagonistic moves by the Trump administration towards the arts could have a real impact on the art market itself. Could you could you tease that out a little bit? Sure, it's um it's sort of a two twofold impact. I mean, obviously, um, Trump is is positioning himself as big business. Um, I think wealthy people uh, expect tax breaks. Corporate um you know cor- corporations I think expect a more favorable business environment, less regulation. So those are some of the factors that did push um the the Dow above twenty thousand. Um, but one of the headwinds that was pointed out to me by Todd Levin um, from the Levin Art Group, he he said the the NEA funding could be um. Uh, you know, almost a, an equally important um, uh, factor mitigating against the growth of a really healthy art economy, um, in particular at the, I don't want to say lower end, but the, the more emerging um, artists, younger galleries, smaller museums. He said, you know, those are the sort of institutions that don't have, you know, people to, to write them massive checks, and they really do rely on um, the NEA to, to support, um, you know, their sort of a little bit out there, a little bit more esoteric um, programming. And he said, you know, you're going to have younger collectors dropping out of the market if they can't find works that are priced within their, um, you know, sp- spending range. Um, so he felt like that was really going to destabilize the the lower end of the art market. You know, and I think it, it, he he was quite clear it's it's not just an economic issue. I mean, he said that that's really disappointing. I mean, that, that's, you know, all the blue chip artists and people we think of as, you know, huge names now, they, they all started somewhere. So if you don't have um, a really strong... Uh, support system for them, um, it's hard to see how our um, art market grows. 
so that paints a pretty bleak picture. Um, Isaac, is there anyone to step in if, uh, with you know the way that things are, majority in the House and Senate and a Republican presidency, the NEA is cut? Who who can save the day? There are a few national arts funders, but really absolutely no one. But I would say I don't want to end on a on a bleak note. I think if there's anything. Um, the protests over the weekend and continued protests have shown us it's that political engagement can make a real difference tangibly. And if you don't want the NEA to be eliminated, should that be the case when the budget comes out in April, get out there and fight for it and fight for it as part of a broader uh, vision of what you believe this, this country should look like. All right, so... Uh, where are we going to be drinking white wine in the art world this week? Anna, since you're new, I'll give you a little bit of time. Alex, let's start with you. Well, last weekend I saw a, a really interesting show at the ICP Museum um, in Lower Manhattan um, called Perpetual Revolution, the Image and Social Change, um, kind of speaking to, to where you just left off, um, looking at the way that images have, have shaped some of the most kind of important social movements uh, of the current moment, whether that's uh, movements around climate change, the refugee crisis, um, Black Lives Matter, etc. Um, I actually thought that the two most interesting sections were um, they had this kind of study room um, focused on ISIS recruitment videos, um, which you know some of which I think people have seen, um, others was were just fascinating to really take some time and watch and understand how that organization um, is marketing itself to to individuals on the ground. Um, they had some really interesting um, footage of, of an American, or a, a, sorry, a British journalist who's uh, captured by ISIS who actually is reporting on their behalf, giving accounts of how um, life in Mosul is, is flourishing and wonderful and uh, goes against the, the kind of accounts of the West um, and some others that show just how, how the organization is recruiting people. The other section I thought was really interesting and uh, was a nice move by the ICP Museum right after um, the election was to add an additional section um, looking at the rise of the alt-right. Um, you know, the museum itself is, is a little bit more raw and, and is taking a, a less kind of refined approach to some of the things in your, your major New York institutions like MoMA, uh, Whitney, even New Museum. Um, and, and that's very refreshing. But also, I think it's really, really interesting to see museums across the spectrum engaging with these issues, um, finding ways to kind of speak to what's happening uh, today and not, not sit back and kind of just be major unmoving institutions. Um, I'm looking forward to seeing the Marilyn Minter show at the Brooklyn Museum. Um, I know, you know, speaking of engagement, I know we had a story about Madonna's uh, appearance there. Um, and she's obviously been hyper-political. I mean, she's been political her entire career, but she's become really outspoken uh, of late. And she was there, you know, specifically talking about resistance and feminism. And um, we had a great story about that on our website. So I can't wait to see that show. And I'm going to be heading to queens uh for moma ps1's uh first comprehensive u.s survey of a uh, british artist uh, mark lecky um not uh, incredibly familiar with his work so it's always nice you know they, they always do an incredible job and i always love going to to long island city well that's all we have time for this week thanks to our guests alex and anna the first of many appearances on the podcast for you Please remember to rate and subscribe on iTunes. See you next time.
Our producer this week was Abigail Kane, and the intro music is by Broke for Free.